0: 213 Things About Me A podcast about thinking, living and dying from an autistic point of view
1: Trigger Warning This podcast contains opinions and ingredients which might induce disquiet in the minds of some listeners Episode 6 After Rose died, I wanted to visit her grave and so took the opportunity to meet and talk to her mother Miriam, it must be difficult for a parent to lose a child. It's not the natural order of things in our modern society. Here's what she had to say.
2: She was born with a lot of energy and couldn't seem to quite contain it. In fact, I have a couple of pictures of her as a little girl where her hair is stood straight up off the top of her head. I only have a couple of pictures of her with her hair like that because um, most of the time... People would pose with her with their hand on top of her head as if they were trying to contain her. She never really learnt to walk like little kids usually do. By the fourth month, she was walking around the furniture and really just going from one piece of furniture to another. And When she was nine months old, I took her somewhere to be with a little boy for a play date. When we came back, he'd been a walker. I put her down at the front door so she could stand there while I, was, while, while I finished locking up and getting us all inside. She took off running across the room and found herself in the kitchen and laughed so hard with such delight when she found that she could walk. <laughs> 81.
0: I never took naps, not even as an infant.
1: How old was she?
2: Nine months. And from that point on, she ran. She, she really didn't walk. She just ran everywhere she could go. She was a bundle of energy. By the time she was three, she was really pretty much reading. I remember being very startled when she picked up a bottle of shampoo and asked me what a, what a fragrance was. <laughs> She'd figured out how to sound out words. Not quite right, but very close.
1: Did you teach her?
2: You know, I did do some teaching, but in retrospect, I did the same thing with her sister, and her speech and reading ability was much slower. But with Rose, as soon as you introduced her to anything, off she went. By the time she was four, she was reading. She was was reading at 10-year-old level by the time she entered kindergarten.
1: So she could read at the age of a 10-year-old, but she was only four.
0: Yes, she could. 82. I was never mischievous or intentionally misbehaved, but was consistently in trouble at school. And she could write.
2: She could write, she could learn to write by the time she was in reception. At one point she had a friend that she loved very much. Her name was Alicia, and Alicia's affections were being stolen away by the evil Molly Meekin. So Rose came up with a master plan, She decided to write a letter supposedly from Alicia to Molly saying terrible things about Molly. The only problem in her evil master plan was that neither Alicia nor Molly could read or write. Rose was the only one who could and she got completely caught out. She thought of things to do that I never thought to tell her not to do and so it was always a game of catch-up with her.
1: Like what? Like what?
2: When she was nine, I found a postcard with a stamp and it was all ready to go off in the post and it was for free issues of Playboy, which was a magazine for men. When I asked her about it, she told me it sounded like a really fun magazine. (laughs) I remember one time when she was at school and they called me to ask, would I please send Rose to school on time? She was probably age seven. I was sending her out the door at about quarter to eight, and school didn't start until a quarter past eight, and we lived literally three streets from the school. I couldn't figure out what she was doing, what was happening. So one day I, I followed her out the door. What would happen was that she would walk halfway forward and halfway backwards. She would walk in circles and she would take her school bag and swing it round her head several times and everything would fall out and she would have to put everything back in. She would get to the post office, which was half a street from our house, and she would go in and she would talk to the lady in the post office. And then she would come out and she would go into the phone booth and she would go into the phone booth under the door without opening up the phone booth door and she would spin around in there for a while and then she would crawl back out and then she would open up the door and go into the phone booth and then she would close the door. Took a full half an hour to walk to school. I offered to walk her which she really didn't want to do because I would have totally spoiled her fun. So we had an agreement that If she couldn't walk to school on time, I would have to get her up at 7.30. She decided that she didn't want to get up that early, so we were okay. We finally came to some sort of agreement.
1: Did you ask her why she was doing that?
2: I didn't. I just assumed that that was how she decided she wanted to go to school. She was a mover. She liked to move. She would sing the whole time and I didn't want to ask her because she seemed awfully happy.
1: How did she get on at school?
2: It depended. I found out later that teachers would smack her and punish her for behaviour that she never told me about. I had no idea.
0: 83. I occasionally throw irrational
2: tantrums when I feel misunderstood or am overwhelmed. In what way? Getting up and talking and answering questions that she wasn't asked. I know one teacher told me that she insisted that her mother would not like it, that she was being taught with phonics and that her mother was going to wage a campaign against phonics. That would be me and I had no idea that phonics were evil.
1: When she went to school, she could already read and write. Didn't the school express amazement at this?
2: No, I think they found it a nuisance. One of the things you realise about schools eventually is that they function best when everybody is pretty much the same. They can tolerate a couple that are a little higher up and a couple that are a little lower. When you get too many kids at the bottom and somebody that is too far at the top, it's hard. I mean, what do you do with a kid like that? I was 21 when Rose was born. I was in my late 20s by the time she went to school. It never dawned on me that I needed to do anything. She was doing fine. We read at home. We did art projects at home. She liked to sing. She liked to make things up.
1: So nobody at school picked up that she was gifted or that she had some special level of intelligence?
2: Oh, gosh, no. No, they they really did see it as a nuisance and not as any kind of gift. 84. I am frequently told that I talk too loud.
1: So what happened when she went to high school?
2: They knew she was incredibly bright, but they didn't know what to do with her. Rose's never responded well to people telling her what to do. I always managed Rose by suggestion and, and not by orders. Orders just caused terrible problems. So I just didn't do it. I, I like to think that it wasn't manipulation, but more general pushing her one way or another. So we ended up here and she went to a school where there was a lot of a lot of noise. Really, in retrospect, it was a terrible mistake. It was a lot of noise and it was very difficult for her to acclimate to all of that. But then she started to make friends. She started to make friends almost immediately with a young lady named Cheryl. They became friends from the get-go. Rose tried to get into the gifted classes, but there was a quota for white kids and for kids of ethnicity and they were over their quota for white kids. So she was never able to get into the gifted classes. She would argue with the teachers. I remember one in particular who had the rather unfortunate name of Mr. Dengrest. And Mr. Dengrest just detested Rose because she would correct him when he was wrong. When he would say things about Shakespeare that were not factual. I remember how she went off on a long rant about how he had Faulkner completely wrong. They got into a headbutting contest that would end up with her getting up in fury and leaving the room.
0: 85. I have sabotaged my success in classrooms by
2: being unable to refrain from correcting teachers.
1: How old was she then?
2: That was when she was about 16, 17. I got called in for a meeting with her, the headmaster and the deputy head. He proceeded to tell me that he had a wonderful education, that he was much smarter than her and she wasn't to be allowed to correct him like that. Finally, I said your credentials have very little to do with it. What we're looking at here is that she needs to conform enough to get through your class. So it's like this. And I turned to Rose and I said, do you understand what's going to happen the next time you do that? And she said, they're going to remove me from English and if I get expelled from English, then I won't be able to go to uni. And I said, the next time she does that, what are you going to do? And he said... I'll send her out of the room and she'll be expelled from English. I said, everybody's clear? And that's... that was it. (laughs) We never had another problem again. He did refuse to take my younger daughter when he saw her name, though. (laughs) Do
1: you think that she wasn't recognised as gifted and just thought of as a nuisance? Was that to do with the fact that you were poor and working class?
2: It's a little hard to explain... My town, we stuck out like a sore thumb. I didn't talk like my neighbours, I had a different register of language. I obviously had had some education and that was kind of a problem. I dressed my daughter differently than everybody else did. And we didn't grow up in this particular small town. And in small towns, if you, if you aren't from there, then you really don't belong and they're just waiting for you to leave. How did you get on at university? She threw herself into that. She made friends like crazy. She went all the way through until I think about second year. And then all of a sudden I got an email from her saying that she had quit school and she was living in France, which was a total shock. I had no idea that she was thinking of doing it. She insisted that she was starving. She didn't have any money for food and that she was going to live and eat with her boyfriend in France. So she stayed over in France for about two or three years with a young man. Then she came back for a short while and then she was off again. By this time she was in her mid-twenties. When I talked to her she seemed pretty happy. But it was difficult to tell exactly what her situation was because I don't think she always knew.
1: I think at one point she lived in Oxford.
2: She wrote me a letter and told me that she was there trying to save a tree in Oxford that she and some other friends were going to save a tree and she was pretty worked up about it. Then the next thing I knew, she was back. I think her father brought her back and when she would get really desperate, she would call up her father. We were divorced and and he had more money than me. He He worked a pretty good job and very reluctantly he would bail her out then make her pay him back. He was pretty adamant about stuff like that.
1: So you never at any point thought there was anything different about Rose?
2: At the very beginning, I thought it was just my poor mothering skills. I'd never taken care of a child before. I was 21, and I thought it was just me. As time went by, I was so engaged with how bright she was, how funny she was, how interesting she was. It it didn't dawn on me that it was anything special. I was raised in a family with a brother who taught himself calculus when he was 12 because he was bored over the summer.
1: He also has Asperger's?
2: Yes. And let me tell you, I have never been bored enough that I think teaching myself calculus is a good idea. So I was raised around very, very bright people and I was I was not as brilliant as any of them. So that was normal to me. People who thought differently and talked differently and had awkward social skills, that's normal in my world. In fact, somebody with good social skills sticks out like a sore thumb in my family.
1: They would have to pretend to have poor social skills in order to mix in?
2: Yes, they would.
1: So jumping ahead to the last couple of years, when did she tell you that she thought she had Asperger's? When did that come up?
2: The subject of Asperger's came up about two years ago when I was on the phone to her driving someplace she told me that she thought she might be Asperger's and what did I think I said well I don't know it never would have occurred to me I know that there have been different diagnoses over the years people thought you were ADHD and someone thought you were a manic depressive but none of those seem to fit so I, I don't know she said she wanted to go and get tested for it and that she'd found a load of stuff online and she Facebooked me a lot of articles that she'd found online and she asked me what I thought. I said, I don't know. My family is kind of like this. I still don't know what I think, to be honest.
1: She did go and get a diagnosis.
2: She did. And they found that she was on the spectrum... It seemed to bring her great comfort that she had a name for what she always felt was the oddness and for the things that she did that didn't fit in with what other people did. It was a comfort to her to know that there was a name for it. It wasn't just weird. I always thought it was just her. It never occurred to me that she thought it was strange. I just assumed it was her.
1: Did it ever occur to you that it might have been causing her distress?
2: Rose always found a lot of things distressing, but I I didn't always know which ones were going to stay distressing. So it would be what I served for dinner was distressing or that no-one was talking to her was distressing. The spectrum of things that bothered her was all over the map. You would ask about something and she would have forgotten or she would say, that's nothing. She wasn't very forthcoming or very good at putting her finger on it and saying, that's a problem. She resisted any attempt to walk her through something. She didn't really want that. 86.
0: I don't like the idea of bathing, washing my face, combing my hair, brushing my teeth, flossing or otherwise primping. 87. Once I start doing those things, I become obsessed and have a hard time figuring out what the standard should be for having finished. 88. It is a sincere and concerted effort to follow the
2: rules of hygiene.
1: Did she wash?
2: No. Frequently she did not. There was a period of time where she did not wash and she did not shave. And then she would shave her head because it was too much of a nuisance to wash her hair. She would wear clothes and rather than wash them, she would just get rid of them and get more second-hand clothes. She she wasn't around a lot. From the time she left for university, she wasn't around very much.
1: Tell me about the soap thing.
2: Oh, she refused for about three or four years to use soap when she washed and she smelled, I mean, it was really bad. Even as her mother, there were times when you'd hold your breath to hug her And occasionally I I would say maybe we could find some hyperallergenic soap and that made her crazy and angry, so we just suffered through.
1: So there was a time when she went in the shower for a couple of hours, fully dressed. Can you tell me about that?
2: That's a story her sister told me recently, that she just stood in the shower fully clothed and just stood there. Years ago when she was a little girl, she would start screaming... Something would frustrate her and she would get into these screaming fits where she would get hysterical and start to sob. I'd put her in the shower and sit with her and hold her until she could calm down and get her breath back. Water seemed to help. Since I heard that story, uh, I've thought about that.
1: Can you talk about the fractured relationship with your daughter and how you'd only made up recently?
2: For many years, when Rose would call, it was a toss-up as to what kind of conversation we were going to have. Sometimes we would have very pleasant conversations. Others would devolve very rapidly. I'd ask how she was in a way that was offensive to her and she would be angry through the whole conversation. Then there would be six months to nine months that I wouldn't hear from her at all. After my husband died and I decided to to reevaluate things i decided that it was more important to me to have a loving relationship with my daughter than any desire to be right or to defend anything i had ever done so rose would come home and inevitably bring up something that had hurt her or wounded her rather than trying to explain it i decided to just say i'm sorry over time the relationship was healed It's a profound comfort. I can't even tell you. I don't know what people do when they lose somebody and they have a rift. I don't know how they can do that. That wasn't the case for us. We had a very good, close relationship and we both got a lot of joy out of each other. It was not much fun when we weren't getting along.
1: What was going on in the house when she was a very small girl?
2: Her dad was a couple of years older than me. He was 23 when we got married. I was 21. He was ecstatic to have Rose. I think he was a little disappointed she wasn't a boy, but he quickly adapted to the idea. He thought she was pretty wonderful. (laughs) Unfortunately, he wasn't good at being a daddy. I think that's the best way to put it. I I think he thought he needed to toughen her up and make sure that she was tough enough to handle the world. She really wasn't a tough person in any way. She had a huge heart. It caused a lot of problems. We had another daughter who was four years Rose's junior, and there was a huge difference in the way he treated the two girls. Rose was the focus of his attention, and sometimes it wasn't good attention. I think her sister was fortunate not to be the focus of his attention. Let me say this. I did not do a good job of interfering in some of the things that he did as a parent. He was a screamer. He liked to scream. He could be very harsh in what he would say and what what he would do. He could play with them. He could be very playful but then he was finished and they didn't know how to be finished yet. He was very, very bright and so he was very proud of how bright Rose was. He would push and push really pushing rose was not a good idea for one thing trying to keep her calm and sound down stimuli down was hard anyway he had a hard time with that his love for her was without question but he had a hard time
1: tell me a bit about how the environment had to be in order to keep rose
2: calm i tried to keep the television off keep music off Or if we did have something like that on, it would be just one thing. If you had toys out, you only had one or two toys out. You didn't have the whole toy box out. I would do things, sometimes like make oatmeal, let her put her hands in it and smear it all around. Sort of a controlled mess so she would get the experience of things without getting into trouble. I let her play in the mud deliberately. We'd go outside when it was raining, go outside when it was snowing and let her take off her gloves and throw herself down in the snow. You had to allow her to do these things in a controlled way, otherwise she'd freeze to death. She'd go out when you weren't looking in her pyjamas. She was pretty good at stuff like that.
1: Like what?
2: Oh, like throwing my mascara in the dryer just to see what it would do. It gives you big white spots on all your underwear, by the way. She painted all her books with spray paint. She thought it would be nice if all her books were the same brown colour. She went upstairs to get the baby, brought her down because the baby was crying. She was four and her sister was about a month, so the baby covered most of her. She didn't have just one imaginary friend, she had a troop. She had seven or eight of them and she would stand at the kitchen tour and usher them outside. took quite a long time. She would shoo them all out. The babies sometimes had to be helped out of the door. She had names for most of them, I don't remember. I don't remember those anymore. She was an inventive and busy child, she really was.
0: 89. I like tops, fishing reels, spools of thread being unwound, staring at whirlpools, merry-go-rounds, doing pirouettes and office chairs and bar stools that spin.
1: I drove home I felt sad for the missed opportunities in Rose's life and for her gifts which she could never really utilise In a way, I'm not surprised by the outcome Looking at the facts, it was kind of inevitable But perhaps next time you bump into someone like Rose you can use some of that famous empathy and realise that some people really aren't like you at all The Voice of Miriam, performed by Abigail Thor. The Voice of Rose, performed by Rosa Hoskins. Narrated, written and produced by Richard Butchins. Edited and mixed by Patrick Nill. This podcast was commissioned by Disability Arts Online, a platform led by disabled people to advance disability arts and culture, with additional support from Unlimited. If you have found this podcast interesting, please subscribe or comment. We can also be found on Twitter.